thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty, and I am delighted and honored to have you with me today as we begin really a new sort of small series in which I want to begin to explain why legal and constitutional rights that Christians think they have are now going to start being used and applied in ways that the Christians who God used to develop and articulate them never would have understood. This is going to be important because we need to realize that the rights we think we have will soon be used against us, and you need to understand why. And I'm going to give you an example of that in today's episode. But in thinking about this subject, in thinking about how it is that Christian conceptions are going to wind up being used against Christians, I want to take our thinking to a different level, or more, maybe I should say to a higher level, in the sense of seeing better the big picture, bigger than the one to which I think we're accustomed, or at least the one to which I was accustomed to seeing the world when God began to challenge my thinking a few years ago. And it's going to tie into what was said in last week's podcast, in which I played an excerpt from the Chalk Knox Live event we hosted in Nashville back in May, entitled, A World Ends When Its Metaphor Dies. You may recall that the title for that event came from a poem written in the 1950s by Alistair McLeish that I found referenced in a book by Harold Berman entitled Law and Revolution, the Formation of the Western Legal Tradition that was published by Harvard University Press back in 1983. And what he said then was so prescient and so relevant for today that we've come to the end of the world of Christendom, a world informed by biblical cosmology, which is just another way of simply saying our understanding of the nature of the cosmos, what it's for and how it works, was actually made evident on June 20th of this year, 2023, when an Arkansas federal district judge, James Moody, ruled that parents' rights entail the right of a parent to consent to the destruction of his or her child's healthy reproductive system. In other words, the law passed in Arkansas a couple of years ago prohibiting doctors from using hormone therapies and surgery to, quote, change a child's gender was unconstitutional because it was the right of parents to consent to the destruction of their child's reproductive system. Now, understand, parental rights is not a new thing. In pagan Rome, the father had the right or the authority of life and death over his child. But the hierarchical authority that even the pagan realized must exist for there to be order in the home 
was reformed by Christianity. In other words, the right preceded Christianity, but was a perverted right. Christianity came along and limited the authority of the Father according to a covenantal or law type of responsibility imposed by God on the Father pertaining to the nature and purpose of the family. So I just mention as an aside here, if Christians are going to talk about patriarchy in today's society and it's in the egalitarian culture in which we live, we must do so in the context of covenantal responsibilities by which the father, the husband, will be judged by God. But, but what we saw in the judge's ruling, this federal district judge in Arkansas, is that the Christianized concept of parental rights has, in a sense, been re-paganized. Not to the point of life or death over the child, being in the father as in Rome, but it is a right to determine whether his child is created and designed toward human procreation or not. And therefore, a right in the parent to cut off not preserve or protect the principle of life, the principle of reproduction, the principle of fruitfulness that we would say is inherent in human nature. So I think we have to ask, how did the world as Christians knew it with this understanding, for example, of parental rights and duties, a world that we stubbornly refuse to acknowledge is gone from our collective understanding. How did it come to an end? And more importantly, can that world be reborn, regenerated, rebirthed? So all good kinds of Bible words. And if so, how? Those are the questions that we want to begin to explore today and in the next week or two. And to be honest, we're blessed by God to live in a time in which it is easier for us to judge history according to the Word of God. As the late Gary North wrote in his last book before he passed away, The Biblical Structure of History, which you can find uh, a link to online in PDF form, historians today don't want Christians to judge culture. In fact, beginning in the early 1900s, leading historians led by Carl uh, Becker began to teach that history cannot be judged because it would require omniscience by the historian. And we're not omniscient. And indeed, we're not. But God is. And he's revealed himself and his purposes with sufficient clarity that we can judge history. And if we don't, we won't have the understanding of how we got to where we are or what we should be doing going forward. And to be honest, from where I sit in the Christian legal and policy community, I, I don't think we do know what we're doing or where we're going. Because the foundational knowledge we need to make wise judgment takes study, reflection, prayer, cross-communication with others engaged in that same endeavor, and there aren't many. But 
to be honest, that's another story, and I and I do cover it in the last three chapters of my new book called Transgenderism, Raising Ancient Issues, Only the Ancient of Days Answered. So if you would be interested in getting information about that book or reading a sample of uh, one of those chapters, uh, send us an email at info at factn.org info at factn.org and we'll get that information to you but thankfully in judging history we have some like professor berman who've gone before us and they've given us a head start on judging our situation and therefore in making our way forward and as i've indicated metaphor plays a huge role in our understanding because it provides an overarching coherence, a bigger vision of the cosmos that helps us make sense of the bits and pieces of factual data that we would be pulling together to judge the situation. In fact, in the preface to his book, he writes this, in periods of crisis, which we are certainly in, we need a larger vision. Without a universal context, particular facts are wholly precarious. In other words, particular facts can be picked off by other people as being not relevant or they don't fit their story. So we have to have a universal context that can make sense of all the facts of history. And then he goes on to say the narrowness of our concepts of law blocks our vision, not only of law, but also of history. So our view of history and our view of law have to mesh together or we'll have a limited view of law. And he explains what he means by the narrowness of our concepts of law, which you'll recall from previous podcasts is the rejection of the biblical conception of law that gave rise to common law and the substitution of a positivistic view of law. And, and here's what he writes. Today, people think of law primarily as the mass of legislative, administrative, and judicial rules, procedures, and techniques in force in a given country. Well, that's Jeremy Bentham, isn't it? The vision of history that accompanies this view of law is severely limited to the more or less recent past and to a particular nation. In other words, there is no universal law anymore. There is no law that pertains to all people in all nations, in all situations, and at all times. A, a concept that even Cicero as a pagan uh, articulated in his book, The Republic. But see, that doesn't exist anymore. And of course, this positivistic view of law of Bentham was fused into our nation's jurisprudence through Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. But I want us to stop for a moment and think about what Berman is saying about a vision of history that goes with the law. So a small view of history gives you a different understanding of law, and your understanding of law will give us an insight into your view of history. And what Berman is saying is what I've already alluded to. 
that law is a development of history under the providence of God, such as we've already discussed the recognition of hierarchy and the application of that to the rights of a father and their development and eventual Christianizing, I guess you could say. So, so that's what he's talking about. When, when we have a right conception of law, we will have a big view of history, which requires a big view of the nature of the cosmos in which that history is embedded. Now, Berman gives me, and those of you who regularly listen to God, law, and liberty, and like what I'm saying, a, a warning about the endeavor we're going to embark on today and in the coming episodes. And here's what he says. It is easy, of course, to complain about the compartmentalization of knowledge, which not only Christians do today, but that compartmentalization is rampant in Christian theology today with its Gnosticism and accompanying dualism. He says it's easy to complain about that rather than do something constructive to overcome it. And that's what most of the time we do. We spend our time critiquing the other worldview, but not thinking about how to restore our worldview, if we even know what it really was. Now, here comes the warning for us. Berman writes, any effort to reintegrate past times to, to look back in history and to see law and its development in history, which is what I've been trying to do with common law, right, is likely to be understood and judged in terms of the prevailing categories and concepts. To present the history of law in the West as a metaphor of our age is to expect a great deal from readers who have been educated in quite different views of history, of law, and of the West. Yet, without a reintegration of the past, there is no way either to retrace our steps, which is what C.S. Lewis said, the progressive man is the person who retraces his steps to find where he got off on the wrong direction. That's the man who's making the most progress. Or, Berman writes, to find guidelines for the future. Now, now, what is he saying? First, I think a couple of things. But we will not be understood. And our efforts are going to be judged, even by other Christians, in terms of the prevailing categories and concepts of law. And that's exactly what's happened to me. One of the leading Christian lawyers in the public policy network said to a group of leaders, when I brought up common law and the history of the common law and its relevance to interpretation of the Constitution, that he appreciated my views, but David is talking about what the law ought to be rather than what the law is. As if Christians should be content with the conception of law that we now have and we should operate according to that. Well, I'm sorry, my friends. As a Christian, I can't accept the ways of the world as just the way things are and be content with it and try to make a go of it in that world because that's not what we're called to do as Christians. And second, 
with respect to Berman's reference to metaphor. I believe what he's saying is that we've become so enmeshed in the details and facts of our world, so caught up in the latest Supreme Court decision, caught up in what the rules say and don't say or allow or forbid, that, that we no longer see the bigger picture and can no longer think in terms of that bigger picture. I mean, for all our worldview training and apologetic conferences over the last 40 years, and I've been to many of them, what he's saying is thinking in terms of a big picture metaphor, particularly as respects law, is going to be foreign to us and it'll be hard. And as a consequence, we'll be inclined to give up. And that, my friends, is precisely what the devil and his captives, who once held the keys to the kingdoms of this world, want from us. But the devil and those taken captive by him no longer have the keys to the kingdoms of this world. And we find that recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 31, as, as the apostle turns from the work of Jesus towards the direction of the cross, he writes, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And as the apostle recorded in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And as recorded in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is, quoting here, the faithful witness. Even now, I might add, the firstborn from the dead, even now, I might add again, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, even now, as I might again add. The sentence structure in verse 5 is such that it is either all a future tense description of Jesus or a present tense description of him. And why some Christians treat Jesus as the faithful witness and his resurrected state as present tense, and with no grammatical change, his rulership over the kingdoms of this world as future tense tells me they either failed grammar in the seventh grade or they have a small view of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish, which was destroy the works of the devil. What we need to do, friends, I believe, is just to live by faith in what the Word of God says, that it's true, even if we don't now see all things subject to Him, as it says in Hebrews. But it does say, we do see Him, which is our proof that what He says is true about the kingdoms of this world is true. And we need to stop living according to the evolutionary cosmological worldview metaphor that man in rebellion against God who hates the notion of a creator has imposed own creation but living that way as Berman notes it's going to be judged as crazy by evolutionary man and even by many in the Christian community who don't realize they have unwittingly succumbed to a worldview metaphor that isn't true 
to the way the world really is. And whatever metaphor we want to stick on the world will not change the metaphor that is, in fact, true about the way the world is. And with that observation, I want to close with two sound bites from last week's episode taken from the Knox Unplugged live event that address the issue of metaphor and cosmology. I hope you enjoy them. I hope you think about them over the course of this coming week. And we'll pick up next week with a law review article by Yale law professor Arthur Leff, who recognizes the truth expressed by Berman. And in these two sound bites, I'm going to play. And he begins to search for a metaphor to replace the God-designed one we've lost. And I think you'll find that episode very fascinating. We live in a world that is a different sort of place than we think it is. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make it not that place. Because the moderns were wrong. It's not uh, We don't give the meaning to the world with our metaphor system, right? The world actually has a meaning. Um, and it, and it's sitting there speaking and, you know, communicating to us and our deafness doesn't make it go away. Every one of the great battles that we have today about marriage, about sexuality, about transgenderism, about race, all of those are cosmological battles. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.